0: Hello and welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements, and this is the podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we are joined by Lee Unkrich, known for his filmmaking work at Pixar, including directing Toy Story 3 and Coco. Lee's also been busy over the past 10 years on a new book, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, published by Tashin, released in February 2023. And it's a lovely collector's edition format. Uh, three tomes of, uh, of, of news about The Shining and, and lots of wonderful stuff besides. Welcome, Lee. Hey, good to be here. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. It's uh, it's a thrill to have you on.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to be here. And um, I have to say that... Uh... Uh, I was a bit daunted trying to pick a film to talk about because you've been so prolific with your podcast that most of the films that I would have wanted to talk about, you've
0: done already. I think when we started the podcast, we didn't think that that could be an issue, but it has come up. (laughs) 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 But thanks for looking through the back catalogue. I think we've picked a pretty good film today, though. Yeah, I
1: hope so. Maybe an unusual choice for me
0: or not. I don't know. I've been following your work in the cinema. I I was actually a cinema projectionist when Toy Story 3 came out. But I don't think people sort of know you as, uh, they might know leader filmmaker, but maybe not Lee the the writer and Stanley Kubrick's The Shining has been such a big part of your life uh, for the last 10 years or so now what's it like to come to the end of the, uh, the writing process on this beautiful and and gigantic book.
1: Yes, it is. uh, But it is gigantic. And I I think it's beautiful. And I hope others do as well. What's it like to get to the end? Uh, It's a huge relief, honestly, because it has been 10 years of my life uh, off and on that I've spent working on it. And I'm happy to finally be sending it out into the world so that other people can enjoy all the things that I've privately been amassing and enjoying myself for so long, but having to keep very, very secret.
0: There's a lot of sort of primary research in this uh, in the book. The the whole you know process is that it's uh, you know it's this this incredible research project where you've found new material, you've spoken to people, you've got sort of original uh, stories from them. But what was it like, sort of just knowing that you know this stuff and nobody else knows it yet? You know you're uh, you've been accumulating this stuff for so long. Um, It must be quite tempting to you know to so sort of want to share it.
1: <laughs> yeah for sure i mean you know i am kind of a predecessor of this book project is a was a website that i have still have called the overlookhotel.com and i started it quite a long time ago i don't even remember when it, it may have been f- 15 20 years ago i don't even know but i created it as kind of a place to to uh to post a lot of things having to do with The Shining that I had amassed over the years that I just had in folders on my computer. And at some point I thought, well, maybe other people in the world like this movie as much as I do or nearly as much, and and they might enjoy seeing it. And so I started posting them. And a great thing happened uh, kind of unexpectedly, which is that, uh, you know, over the over the years, several people who worked on the film got in touch with me. And so that really started uh, kind of a web of connections that I was able to make to other people. And um, back in 2012, when I first pitched the idea of doing this book to the Kubrick estate and and they ultimately kind of greenlit it and and let me move on creating it Um I I knew that the very first thing that I had to do was try to track down every living person who was either in the film or worked on the film to interview them because nobody was getting any younger, and I knew that some of the people were likely quite old who had worked on the film. I, I started interviewing them, and in many cases, I learned that they had private photo albums and ephemera things that they had kept from the film, and and so. The, the the material that I had access to just kept growing and growing. At the very beginning, I was putting some select things up on my website, but I pretty quickly realized that if I kept doing that, that there was going to be nothing special left for the book. Now, you know, when people look at this book, I did some back of the napkin math, and uh, of all the images uh, in the book not including stills from the finished film, about 75 percent of them have never been published before. And and a pretty large percentage of that 75 percent uh, have never been seen by more than a handful of people. So I think people are going to be pretty uh, amazed, fans of The Shining, fans of Stanley Kubrick. I even, uh, you know, convinced uh, Steven Spielberg to write the foreword for the book, And uh, because I had interviewed him previously, uh, since I had heard he had visited the set of The Shining, and I wanted to talk to him about that, but he graciously uh, wrote the foreword for the book, and one of the things that he writes in the foreword is that he was astonished uh, looking through the book at the number of images that he was unfamiliar with. And I think that's going to be the the experience for for most people.
0: That's incredible. Wow, 75%. Like that's a meaty, we often, I guess as film fans, you know, there are books released on big films all the time. Some of them, are offering very little new content, you know, stories or whatever. Often stories get recycled, but... I'm so surprised that someone hasn't done this already. The Shining is one of the most famous films of all time. Yeah, well, I was, and, uh, I was
1: surprised too, which is why I decided to make it myself. I, I, it was a book I had long wanted to be in the world and,
0: and uh, I made that happen. Anyone who knows uh, a little bit about Stanley Kubrick, he didn't like to chuck things away. And he he kept this huge, uh, you know, sort of personal archive of, of completed projects and very far from completed projects. Our previous guest on the show, John Ronson, actually made a documentary called Stanley Kubrick's Boxes, which explores mm. sort of the archive before it went into its sort of current home. Yeah, I love
1: that film. I mean, that was when I first learned about Kubrick's... Uh collection. And and then subsequently, of course, I learned that the family had uh, donated everything to the um, London College of Communications to establish the Stanley Kubrick Archive. And uh, and of course, that was a primary resource for me for the book. Um, They allowed me to go in and look at and scan every last little document having to do with The Shining and this quite a bit, and a lot of photos that have many, many photos that have never been um, published before that they had. But the interesting thing was when I looked through all the photos, I thought, wow, these are all really great, but they only cover kind of limited parts of the production because he generally didn't like having, uh, you know, a unit photographer on the set. So I looked through these and I thought, wow, they're really great, but I don't know that I have a book here. I don't know that I have enough photos, especially for a Tashin book, you know, that I knew was going to be very image heavy. Luckily, as I started to find people and and, um, convince them to talk to me about the book, I Came upon more and more photos, and then the real treasure trove was when I, I met um, Dan Lloyd, who plays Danny in the movie, and he ultimately introduced me to his parents, who are both still living, who accompanied him um, on the on the whole shoot on the year that they spent in England, and it turns out that they had uh, a photo album filled with with shots that they had taken that Stanley had allowed them to take and made them promise to never sell. And so they ultimately ended up giving me about 450 negatives. I mean, w- with those in hand, I then knew that I had the makings of a really complete book because there were aspects of the production that that Jim Lloyd photographed that there was no other visual coverage of otherwise. So I, as I was scanning these images and seeing them, um, I just was blown away by image after image of, of, of seeing things that I'd never seen. And it also allowed me to start connecting the dots. You know, I would hear stories from people and then I would see a photo and um, I was able to make some connections. Um, Having the photos was also great when I sat down to interview people in person because I could show them photos and that would spark memories that they probably, you know, stories that they wouldn't have told me
0: otherwise. It sounds like making this book, you know, you're sort of doing a, a bit of a gumshoe sort of detective work. Uh, it, it must have been quite an exciting sort of process, but a, a pretty, you know, large uh, process to to work on. How once you've amassed such an incredible amount of material, how did you sort of edit it down into what we see today in the book? Yeah,
1: we had a massive amount of material. I had I had vast resources of articles, interviews, um you know, all these images. And uh, I had never written a book before. So luckily, very early on, in fact, when I first reached out to the Kubrick estate to to ask them about doing a book, they said, they being Jan Harlan specifically, um, Kubrick's brother-in-law, uh, he said, great, yes, we'd love to have you do a book. But the problem is somebody else has just approached us to do a book on The Shining, and we can't support two. And I thought, oh, great. <laughs> like, what are the odds, like, now at this moment in time when I finally want to do this book? But, so I said, well, hey, why don't you introduce me or at least reach out to the other person, see if they're willing to talk, and maybe we can collaborate. And it turned out that the other person was the writer J.W. Rinsler, Jonathan Rinsler, who worked for Lucasfilm at the time and had done a number of books on the making of the Star Wars films and Indiana Jones. He had written an alien book Um He just had a lot of experience doing these types of books. So I invited him to Pixar. We had lunch, we hit it off and we decided that we wanted to do this together. So I had massive amounts of research. He knew how to collate it into something uh, readable and fun. And so we set off together and we worked together for many years. Um, We just slowly shaped it over time. And um, yeah, I really enjoyed working with him. Unfortunately, kind of in the last couple of years, uh, before the book came out, Jonathan uh, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and he ultimately passed away um, well before the the book, you know, finally came out. So, I've dedicated the book to him. I'm grateful for everything he added to it and my time working with him on it. He was as passionate about it as I was, and he was very proud to be doing a, a book on the making of a Kubrick film. Certainly.
0: It's an incredible legacy, you know, not just through, through this, uh, but through his other work as well. Um, I think uh, film fans will know the name and, and you know, it's, uh, it's, it's yet another reason to want to seek out uh, the book on Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. You know, are you a fan of Kubrick's other films? And was it ever, you know, as you're doing this research, did you, is it easy to be distracted by tidbits you'd learn about, you know, other sort of Stanley Kubrick projects? Mm,
1: well, yes, I, of course, I was, I'm a huge fan of all of Stanley's films. Um, I never got distracted. When I was in the archive, sure, I mean, they boundless amounts of material from his other films there ready to be looked at. But I didn't look at any of that because I was so focused on The Shining. And The Shining is the film that I'm the most kind of obsessed with. But I did. I learned a lot about Stanley, not only on this film, but on many of his films, because many of the people I spoke to worked with Stanley on multiple films. And so invariably, they would tell stories or talk about um, other films that they had worked on with him. And what emerged between those stories and all of the materials in the archive, all of his personal notes on various drafts of the screenplays and his copious notes on Stephen King's novel, what began to emerge was a portrait of a, a real person. Um, so that's one of the biggest things that I came away from this project with is everyone, myself included, put Stanley Kubrick up on this pedestal as being kind of one of the most incredible film directors ever, filmmakers. And um it's easy to think that he was some genius who just thought up these films and made them and put them into the world. Um, but the reality is much different as it is really for most movies. Um, you know, Stanley struggled. I saw a lot of very similar struggles to the kinds of struggles I went through making films where I was unsure of myself, um, didn't know how to end the the films sometimes, um, you know, just didn't didn't have the answers. and i and i and I see that. I see him struggling to figure things out. The shining, especially. he was Stanley was still writing the the film while he was making it. I mean, he had he had done a lot of work with Diane Johnson, his co-screenwriter. But they never wrote like the last third of the movie. like the whole the whole kind of visual climax of the film in the maze, uh, all that stuff isn't in any of the early screenplays. So Stanley spent a lot of the movie not knowing how he was going to end it. And, and interestingly, and this is all illuminated in the book, there were ideas he had for the ending when he began filming the movie. And so he was planting things to make that ending work. But then he ended up abandoning that ending and coming up with a whole new ending. But there are these kind of ghostly echoes of these older ideas that are in the film. A good example of that is originally he hadn't come up with the idea of Danny walking backwards through his own footsteps in the snow to to trick his father. Uh, And instead, um, he had Danny grab a hammer. There there are these little hammers and bells in the maze for people who get lost. And he was going to have Danny smash out all the lights one by one, kind of plunging the maze into darkness. And then he was going to take this little toy phaser that he had in the holster on his hip. And... Uh, which is kind of a flashlight ostensibly and kind of light his way out, leaving his father trapped in the darkness. Well, when he began filming the movie, that was how he thought he was going to end the film. So if you look throughout the first part of the film, you can see this phaser, this little toy phaser all over the place in the first scene where Danny's eating peanut butter sandwiches with his mom, with Wendy in the kitchen, his phaser sitting right there on the table. When Danny goes out into the maze with, with Wendy, um, To explore, you can see he's wearing a holster with this gun in it. So it doesn't matter that it doesn't add up to anything because, you know, he's never shining a light on it. But if you know why it's there, it becomes very interesting, I think.
0: Outside of your your work as a as a filmmaker and and you know author and an editor and, and things, do you do you get to watch a lot of films? Is is going to the cinema or you know a movie night at home uh, something that you you like to do? And and because we are a podcast about runtimes, does a film's runtime ever come into your personal decision making uh, process? In terms of watching a film,
1: um, I would say yeah, I would say only in terms of uh, how much time I have to watch a movie. <laughs> you know if i if i have a hard out then yeah i'll i'll try to pick a shorter film um but generally no i mean in fact i usually don't even look at the runtime i don't want to i don't want to have any preconceived notions about what the pace is going to be like or how it's going to unfold i just want to watch the film but yeah certainly in the films that i've made i i had to very much pay attention to it because as you may or may not know animated films especially the films we made at pixar are very expensive and every additional minute or even 30 seconds of screen time uh, adds up to a lot of money. And so there's always a lot of pressure on us to keep the runtimes um, down, uh, honestly, in the 90-minute range. Uh, that's kind of always our target. And if we start going over 90 minutes by too much, we have to really justify that it's necessary and, and maybe be smart about other choices that we make in production to, to make sure that you know, we're not overspending on, on creating the film
0: you know, as well as sort of the, the sort of hard budgets, you know, that you're working on, but just like good economical storytelling as well.
1: Yeah, it's good to have those limits, actually. I mean, limits and boundaries are good, I think, for filmmakers. Um, I don't think it's a necessarily a good thing when you see filmmakers that, you know, have become established and, and successful and, and suddenly they're making three hour plus films because no one's going to say no to them. You know, maybe there are some cases of films that long that are very good, but a lot of them don't need to be that long. And um, I, myself on my films, was faced many times with having to make hard choices um, to, to tighten. And it always made the film better, always, in every case. I can't think of a single instance where I lost
0: something that I later regretted. So Toy Story is a film that we've covered. On the podcast very 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 early on with you know some fans of the film but i think you know actually having you on the podcast lee someone who was there at pixar for so long and i think your first feature film credit is toy story as an editor mm-hmm. which is a very you know runtime <laughs> related uh, uh role it would be remiss of us not to uh not to sort of take you um, down memory lane um if you'll indulge us for a little bit absolutely uh, to talk about this uh beautiful 81 minute long film
1: yes yeah it was 28 years ago which is very hard for me to accept that much time has passed in my life, but it was I was I was
0: in my mid twenties when I edited Toy Story. Just going back a little bit further, um, yeah. How did you know working at Pixar come about, and and what sort of work had you done prior to uh, you know working on Toy Story as editor?
1: Sure, I um I worked at, well. I went to film school at the University of Southern California, and by the end of my time there, I got a, I got an undergrad degree, and then uh, did a bunch of work towards a graduate degree that I didn't finish. Um, but by the end, I was very focused on editing. Um, I was directing as well, but editing had become my primary passion. And so, when I left school, my, the first work that I got was as an assistant editor. And uh, I was working on a, a on a digital nonlinear editing system that was brand new at the time, called Avid. And nobody really knew how to use it. There were very there were only a handful of people who knew how to. Edit on it or be an assistant on it, and I happened to be one of them. So I got work pretty quickly right out of school. So I worked in television for for a few years as an assistant editor, and then pretty quickly they bumped me up to actually editing. And you know, I cut a couple of TV movies, and uh, I was set to edit what was going to be my first feature, which was a live action feature, um, and that ended up falling apart, but it was okay because around the same time I got a call from Pixar asking me to come up. And it was really, it's funny. It was just supposed to be like a four to six week job um, to help them get ready for a, a screening at Disney. Cause they had another editor working on the film already, um, but they needed, an, uh, you know, someone else. So that four to six week job turned into 25 years, which I never ever would have expected. But I, you know, I, I had heard of Pixar before, even though Pixar had never made a feature film. John Lasseter had directed a number of short films in the early years at Pixar, and I had seen them and was enthralled by them. So I have kind of the computer geek part of me, and then I have the filmmaker part of me. And what Pixar was doing seemed to be kind of a perfect fusion of those two parts of my brain. So at the very least I wanted to go up to interview just so I could see how they did what they did. I just, I knew nothing about computer animation and I, you know, I got the job and, uh, Pretty soon I was in the trenches and very much learning how the films were made. And and I found that I was bringing to the table a lot more than just being an editor. Um, I was able to bring my directing skills to the table because the guys, uh, the group of uh, guys who I was working with, who were kind of at the creative center of Pixar at the time, they had a lot of experience in animation, but they none of them had experience in live action. And I realized pretty quickly that Toy Story... Needed to follow the rules more more the rules of conventional live action filmmaking than traditional hand drawn animation, and so we kind of went with that philosophy and treated them treated the films like live action films. And so uh, John and the others really leaned on me uh, for issues having to do with staging and blocking and camera work and uh, along with the editing. And I guess I they were happy with what I was bringing to the table because you know I only ended up editing two features, Toy Story and A Bug's Life, before um, John asked me to step up and co-direct Toy Story 2 with him.
0: That's an incredible, you know, sort of journey and, you know, to land on something, you know, I guess at the time you don't know, but it's so much bigger than just a film, isn't it? You know, Toy Story, it's this huge sort of property now. Well, Of course,
1: yes. Um, but it's funny that, you know, at the time we made it, nobody had seen anything like it. Like the whole time we were making it, we were, we just knew we were making something really special that we were gonna unveil to the world. It's kind of like me making my Shining book, actually. Same kind of feeling of knowing you have something, you have the goods. And, uh, you know, it's only a matter of time before you can, like, show it to the world. And, you know, people were astonished by it. People wrote more about how it was made than the story because it was just such brand new technology. And people were just so wowed by the imagery, and it's funny now because it it looks so crude. If you go back and watch Toy Story now, thank God the story is as good as it is, and it's so fun, and the performances are are, are great. Because without that, I think it would have been you know relegated to uh, a footnote, <laughs> you know. It, uh, but that's why it's persisted, and we knew that at the time while we were making it that even though people were going to be wowed by the computer graphics, we knew we had to have a good story. And so that's all we ultimately cared about the most was making sure we had a really, really good story with great characters. But but we did joke at the time. I remember specifically saying, uh, the, I remember Andrew Stanton saying, Toy Story is going to be the ugliest film we ever make. And, and he was absolutely right. I mean, you, like, you look at Toy Story and then Toy Story 3, Toy Story 4, side by side. And my God, I mean, it, looks, it looks like Toy Story was made by, um, you know, some high school students in a garage. Yeah. Um, I don't mean to be cruel to it. I can be because I made it. <laughs> but um, it, it is pretty crude, but it was the best we could do at the time. And the film, you know, was a huge success despite uh, the, the kind of crudeness of it. Buzz! Ha! You're alive! This is great! Oh, I'm saved! I'm saved! And he'll find you here. He'll take us back to the room, and then you can tell everyone that this was all just a big mistake. Huh? Right? Buddy? I just want you to know that even though you tried to terminate me, revenge is not an idea we promote on my planet.
0: Oh, well, that's good. But we're not on my planet, are we? When you came on board and, you know, you were sort of hearing about the story for the first time, can you remember what your first response was and, and you know, sort of how it, how it changed over over that period of production?
1: I came on to Toy Story at a very interesting time. Anyone who's a fan of the film, who's read about the making of the film, knows that there was a point early on where the entire film was shut down by Disney because it just wasn't working. And it honestly, it wasn't working because they were getting notes from Disney that they were trying to address and it was taking the film more and more off track. Tom Hanks' uh, character Woody was like cruel and mean and really unlikable, and it was because they were being given notes to make the movie more edgy and more adult, and um, and they they just got kind of lost in the woods because of it, and and the film wasn't working and it was shut down. I mean, they they Disney pulled the plug on it, and basically uh, the folks at Pixar kind of asked for one opp- last opportunity to fix it and make it work. And they kind of got back down to what they were passionate about in the first place and and the promise of what they wanted to make. And they steered back to that fully. They had a screening and, uh, and they got the green light to keep moving again. And so it was right after that green light that I was hired to work on it. So a little bit of the film had been animated at that point. They had already animated the Green Army Man sequence none of the stuff of the toys in the room listening to what was going on, but the actual journey of the army men down to the birthday party that had been animated. So when I, the first day I showed up at Pixar, they showed me the reels. They showed me the movie as it existed at that point. And uh, you know, it's all storyboards, very crude storyboards. Um, But then we hit the army man sequence and I was just completely blown away. It just looked so fun. And I could see the promise of the whole film just in seeing those few shots that had been animated and here's a funny story. I was in the middle of watching those reels for the first time. I was alone in the in the little theater where Pixar used to be. And all of a sudden the lights clicked on in the room and all these guys started walking in. I didn't know who any of them were at that point, but one of them was John Lasseter and uh, several of the others were animators. And they were coming in. They didn't know I was in there watching the film. They were coming in to, uh, to have dailies. Um, and so I kind of sat off to the side and watched as they projected literally the very first shot of Woody that uh, that had been animated for the film. And it was a shot when Woody jumps up on the bed and he kind of leans in to talk to Sarge when he's going to send him down to the party. It's kind of a close shot on Woody over uh, Sarge's shoulder. And, I, you know, I didn't know the import of that moment. <laughs> that I was seeing this character that was going to go on to become like an iconic character. I was seeing him spring to life for the very, very first time. That's
0: incredible. And I guess also for you coming on board, you actually like seeing the Army Men scene, seeing, seeing you, what we're aiming for uh, after seeing all the boards. And Absolutely. Like, okay, this is this is the where we're going. Yes.
1: I, I don't remember having conversations about the running time of the film while we were making it. I mean, I think there was an understanding that it needed to be around 90 minutes, as I said. I was surprised when I saw how short it was because I didn't remember that it was actually under 90 minutes. What is the runtime? Is it like eighty-five? Something yes, like that? Yes,
0: 81, I think. Oh,
1: eighty really? But regardless, if it's eighty one minutes, that's astonishing to me. And I don't think we ever made another film that was that short.
0: Toy Story is the only Pixar film we
1: can um we could officially yeah. cover on yeah, on so, this But I think I mean, <laughs> many of them are close. Many of them are not much over 90, but um yeah. Uh yeah, that's just amazing to me that it's so short. But you know what? I mean, if it's a full story and like you don't need more than that amount of time to tell it. That's kinda what we had to do at the time. We just had to keep them short and, and so that they could be affordable and producible.
0: It's one of, you know, Pixar's great selling points is obviously it's it's, you know, beautiful animation that, that people know and love, but the stories are so tight, you know, and, and well thought out. And I think Toy Story is one of those films you could study in a screenwriting class. You know, it's got it goes from A to B to C, you know, and 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 it takes you on this great, really emotional, funny journey in eighty-one minutes.
1: And the funny thing is, we did. I mean, we really didn't know what we were doing then. We were all young. Most of us were in our 20s. I think John was maybe 30, 31 when he directed that. The whole film was held together with spit and rubber bands, and we did not know what we were doing. We were figuring it out along the way. Andrew Stanton was not yet the accomplished screenwriter that he is. He was just learning. We had other screenwriters working on the film off and on, Joss Whedon being one of them. Um, but Andrew at times needed to step in and write. And he was just like, well, nobody's here and available to write. So I'm going to do it. And uh, it's a testament to how Pixar was structured then and is still structured in that they give the filmmakers a lot of time to work the stories out because good storytelling is really hard. I don't care how many Oscars you've won. Every new film is a new challenge. And... Uh, you know we've been telling stories as a as a as a species for you know several thousand years, but it it never gets any easier. Storytelling is just difficult so um thankfully, we were given the room to mess up a lot uh, because any writer will tell you you need to go off into the weeds sometimes and and not know where you're heading and because you pick up ideas along the way, even if you end up abandoning that, that, uh, that approach or, you know, that where where you were trying to take the story. Um, I mean, every film I ever worked on had massive changes over the course of the time we spent developing the the story and, and the story development often is, you know, two to three years before we even begin production on the film. So, I mean, certainly freelance screenwriters working on their own might, work on a, a screenplay for that long but in the kind of in the studio system you know they just want <laughs> that's why there are just so few good movies any given year it's because studios want products and if a, if a screenplay is halfway decent they'll put it into production and and it's not put through the rigor that screenplays really need to be put through prior to production if you want to end up with a, a great
0: film story meetings at pixar are you know sort of quite uh legendary and you know sort of film fandom and there's quite a few pixar films which are you know it's, it's sort of out there you know it changed halfway through production and yep. and, and it made the film better yeah you know, that, that feels like quite a unique place to actually be able to well
1: we try not to yeah we try not to do it halfway through production the only time i can think of that happening was on toy story 2 but they do change quite a bit like i mean i even think of coco coco went through Two major reboots and and uh, um, reconsiderings before we finally settled on the story that we ended up making, uh, and a lot of work had been put into those two other versions, uh, which ultimately were completely scrapped. But you know, it was it was what needed to happen. You know, my gut was telling me that those weren't the film that this needed to be. And uh, again, luckily, I had the support of uh, the studio to to make such a bold move to completely scrap. You know, months and months of work to to start over again.
0: The audiences are kind of richer for it. You know, we've we've got these you know beloved I- iconic films. Coco, especially one of my most favourite films in, in in recent years. You know, it's got this timeless, really deep quality to it. Um, Thank you. Such a such a beautiful piece of work. Uh, your your career at Pixar's. You know, so you know it, it must be quite unusual to sort of go from. Sort of editor director, but you always carried on editing. Um, I, I think I'm right. You kept your editing credits on on your later films as well. Yes. Was that quite important for you to for you to do?
1: Yeah, um, I was a bit worried when they had me start directing that I was going to not be able to keep editing because I just knew how much I was bringing to the films as an editor, and I, it was hard for me to imagine not being able to keep doing that. So there were times over the years, especially when I started editing uh, directing solo on Toy Story Three. Um, where I would be approached and, you know, people would say they worried that I was not delegating enough or I was too close to the material and I wasn't able to be objective. And I just completely disagreed with them. I was able to kind of put on the two hats and I, I'm i able to solve a lot of problems and make things work in the editing room. And so I just needed to actually put my hands on the films. I worked with a number of great editors over the years on the different films but in every case we went into those partnerships with them knowing full well that I was ultimately going to have final say and and be putting my hands on the film and everybody agreed to it and I you know in some cases saw it as an opportunity to learn from me um Maybe they weren't always happy. I don't know. If I was editing something, I don't think I'd want someone taking it from me and reworking it. But it, but again, everything was communicated from the beginning that that's how it was going to go. And so it, it all happened in a healthy way. Um, and I just had to do that. I mean, on on both Toy Story 3 and Coco, I would regularly bring the ho- the film home on the weekends and just edit at home and and shape stuff when I had time to spend hours and hours and hours thinking and working because I wouldn't have that kind of time when I was in the building at Pixar because I had a million meetings, you know, to deal with
0: every last aspect of the film. I hear that. Yeah, I think sometimes headspace is, is sort of the, the the ultimate challenge. But uh, when you're also the editor, you you can afford yourself that times sounds like a lot in your personal time though
1: it was but you know it was not good for my family i suppose but uh it was for you know the greater good i don't know my wife would probably roll her eyes if she heard me say that um but um yeah i just uh i just couldn't imagine not cutting and you know i'm not the only filmmaker who cuts his own films i mean james cameron always uh, is part of the editorial team. Joel and Ethan Cohen cut their own; have always cut their own films under a pseudonym. So, some filmmakers are just wired to be great editors, and, and it would be silly for them to not use the skills that they and the instincts that they have.
0: It's experience, isn't it? You've got so many great sort of editing credits uh, before this, and so much experience. It makes sense to use it. Uh, you know, uh, on on Coco and Toy I Story thought. Three.
1: What I thought. Finally. Ugh. Hey, who's got my hat?
0: Look, I'm Woody. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Ah-ha, uh-huh, ah-ha, uh-huh. give me that. It's sort of known that there's, uh, there's quite a few shining references in, in, in Pixar films, and I was wondering on Toy Story 1, was that something that, you know, were, were you involved in, in any of those, or, or, or did no, you, did you start no, putting your no, Easter eggs in later? <laughs> I'll
1: tell you a funny story. The, the reference that people pull from Toy Story, of course, is the carpeting in Sid's hallway, um, which is kind of similar to the Overlook Hotel uh, hallway carpeting, uh, though the colors and the scale are a bit different. But now it's funny because people know what a huge Shining fan I am. They assume that that was my doing, but it actually wasn't. That was designed long before I came on the film uh, by production designer Ralph Eggleston. Uh, That was his choice there. Um, There was a reference that is no longer in the film that I did put in, which is uh, at the end of the film when all of the toys come alive and kind of freak out Sid there's a doll that kind of emerges from the sandbox and sits up. And um, I didn't make this choice on my own. I pitched it and everyone was excited. And we, we originally had the doll saying red rum, red rum, when it came up out of the sandbox. And it wasn't until we were in the mix, we were in the middle of the mix and the color timing of the film that one of the Disney executives was at the color timing. And she heard that and she said, Wait, what does that doll say? And someone said, oh, it's saying red rum. It's murder backwards. And she completely freaked out because Disney had just recently been embroiled in all these scandals about uh, animators hiding things in the movies. And and there was all kinds of stuff in the news about rock stars putting in backward, backwards messages in their songs. So it was kind of in the zeitgeist at the moment. And she said, absolutely not. We cannot put that in there. So we changed it to just mama, mama. Um, but yes, after that, subsequently, uh, you know, I I was responsible for putting a lot of shining references into the films. Um, one of them, though, that I did not do was in Finding Nemo when Bruce the shark is kind of banging his way through the door, and then he says, "Here's Brucey." Um, that was Andrew Stanton's um, completely, but everything else is me. <laughs> yes, over the years, I put a lot of references into Toy Story three, just subtle things. There's a license plate on the garbage truck that says that's room 237. There's a Kleenex box on the desk where the monkey is. Uh, That's the Overlook Hotel carpeting. There there are a bunch in that movie. And and we put a bunch in uh, Coco as well. My crew even put one in that I didn't even know about. They put it in for me and waited till I found it. Amazing. I own one of the axes from The Shining, along with a number of other props and costumes. And I thought it would be fun to hide the axe from The Shining in the film somewhere. So I brought my axe in and they measured it and were able to reproduce it exactly. And it's early in the film There's a scene where Dante, the dog, is um, kind of sitting in the yard of uh, the family compound. And in the background, there's a tree stump and stuck in the tree stump is the axe uh, from The Shining. When I was looking at the finished shot and enjoying it, my someone on my crew who's in charge of all the set dressing Said, do you see something else in the shot? And I said no. And he said, what's what's next to the tr- what's next to the uh, the tree trunk? And I said uh, like a, a steel drum. And he said, yeah. What color's the drum? And I said red. Oh. It's a red drum. (laughs) So anyway, it's just, you know, it's a bit of fun. It takes a long time to make these films and it's fun to just, it's totally self-indulgent to hide these things in it. But it became fun over the years because as people became aware of them, it was part of the game you know when a new pixar film came out to try to find the easter eggs
0: it's good to have fun and it's just great that the you know the rest of the crew were sort of aware of it and, and starting to uh, put things in for you uh, there but um, as a as a pixar fan myself you know I, I love looking through. not you're not just um easter eggs for the shining but you know easter eggs from other pixar sure. films and and all that sort of stuff i i was very much part of you know that sort of trawling the internet and trying to find you know those complete lists and and all that sort of stuff
1: yeah it was fun and we it was always fun when we- Film came out because people would catch some of them, but not all of them. And even in these kind of massive compendiums of Pixar Easter eggs, I know that there's some that aren't there that are just maybe too obscure and nobody ever noticed them.
0: Feel so like with the Shining book, they're still with you. They're not out in the, uh, in right. the world just yet. <laughs> right. Right. I actually um,
1: put an Easter egg in my Shining book, um, of sorts, but I'm not telling anyone about it because I want to keep it just a little private thing that nobody knows.
0: Wow, that's a that's quite a tease. <laughs> yes, sorry. <laughs> um, just 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 one one sort of last question on on, on Toy Story. Do you remember? I, I sort of remember when growing up and going to the cinema and seeing it when it first came out. But do you remember how you felt when the film came out and you you know got to either see it with an audience or you know like hearing audience feedback from from the movie back in in ninety five.
1: Toy Story, of course, I fully remember. I mean, my God, we didn't, you know. I, I told you that we were trying to make a great film, but that doesn't mean just because we want to doesn't make mean that we did. Um, and so, yeah, I remember the, the when the when the film was released and the first reviews started coming out, we were all just kind of gobsmacked by how great the reviews were and that the reviews weren't focusing on the technology. They were talking about how great this was as a film. And as a story, and I still have all those. I have all the emails from nineteen ninety five, or as these uh, as these reviews started coming in. Um, so yeah, it was. We were all very, very proud of that film, and proud that the that the world embraced it to the degree that it did. I mean, we knew while we were making it that that Toy Story could very well be the first and last film that Pixar ever made. There was no guarantee. We didn't know we were going to become a big studio. We didn't know we were, you know, you'd be talking to me 25 years later plus and that we'd have so many films under our belt. You know, if Toy Story had bombed, that would have been the end of it. But thankfully, that didn't happen.
0: That brings us to the end of the podcast Lee. thank you so much for for talking to us today and and you know for your work over the the years on these fantastic stories that we've been able to see on screen and and now your work that we're able to hold in our hands and and flick through and pour over thank
1: you let me just say uh, just a quick plug for the book um it's going to be available uh it's available for pre-order now and it'll be shipping in february the, the first edition is this big special edition of the book. It's only a 1,000 copies, um, and it, it's quite pricey, um, as a lot of and special editions are. Um, but eventually, there will be a much more affordable edition for everybody to enjoy um, without having to drop so much money. <laughs> So oh, I I hope uh, people who are interested in the film, interested in Kubrick, uh, pick it up and and enjoy.
0: I'm really looking forward to sort of finishing the book, reading all the way through it, and then rewatching the film. That must be uh, I think that will be sort of a revelatory kind of experience with The Shining.
1: Well, I'll tell you, it's funny you say that because Steven Spielberg, at the very end of his foreword, actually says you must uh, you must read this book. And the moment you finish it, you need to watch The Shining again. And, and he says, I don't care if you've watched it 50 times, you're never going to see it the same way again.
0: Oh, that's amazing. I mean, from, from, from the big man himself. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Lee. And i um, excited to see what you do in the future. I hope you, you have a rest after, uh, you know, completing this, this very impressive project. Thank you. It's great talking to you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or if you've got a mo, share an episode with your friends. Every recommendation helps. You can contact us on our website, 90minfilmfest.com, and on Twitter and Instagram, at 90minfilmfest. The podcast is produced by me, Sam Clements, and Louise Owen. It's edited by Louise Owen, with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick, and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We'll be back in a couple of weeks.
1: We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network.